Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Allison Kosick in for Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Evergrande Impact fears over Chinese property default hit global markets. Power off, the UK government holds crisis talks as Europe is hit by rising fuel costs. And trade tensions, France warns the dispute over submarines could sink EU-Australia talks. It's Monday, let's make a move. Welcome to First Move. Great to have you with us this Monday. Let's get right to the financial markets. It looks like it's a classic risk-off day for global stocks. Wall Street is on track for steep losses, at least in the early going, with uh, the Dow set to fall about 2 percent. The S&P 500 and the Nasdaq futures, they are sharply lower as well. In Europe, French and German stocks are down well over 2 percent. The losses come ahead of a challenging week for global investors as markets brace for a possible loan default at Chinese property developer Evergrande. The company's worsening liquidity crisis triggered big slides in other property-related stocks listed in Hong Kong today. The Hang Seng Index tumbling more than 3 percent. In mainland China, markets were closed for a holiday. And it's not just uncertainty over China. Investors also bracing for this week's key meeting of the U.S. Federal Reserve. Policymakers could give their strongest hints yet that they will begin easing monetary support later this year. So there's a lot going on uh, for investors to worry about. Let's get right to the drivers and the latest on Evergrande. Shares of Evergrande falling another 10 percent today in Hong Kong over its massive debt crisis. The company's stock has now shed almost 85 percent this year. Stephen Jang is in Beijing with the latest. It's really not surprising to see Evergrande stock price plummet again in Hong Kong on Monday, given the company was supposed to repay interests on some bank loans on Monday, according to Bloomberg, which also said that Chinese authorities had told major banks that they wouldn't be getting those payments. But the bad news doesn't stop there for China's most indebted property developer because more interest payments are due later this week on two of the company's bonds, totaling more than $100 million. It's not clear how much, if any, of those debt obligations will be met by this company, whose liabilities are now exceeding $300 billion. Publicly, the company is still trying to put on a brave face, but it has acknowledged its cash flow problems. The worry right now is the company's debt burden is so large it could spill over into other parts of the Chinese economy. Mainland Chinese markets are closed on Monday because of a public holiday, but in Hong Kong, we've already seen share prices drop sharply for companies associated with uh, Evergrande, including local Hong Kong developers, as well as Chinese banks and insurance companies, even those that claim they have little or no exposure to Evergrande. 
Now, this is really a reflection of how increasingly nervous investors have become about this prospect of a disorderly collapse of a grand and its wide impact on numerous industries and sectors in China. And this company, of course, uh, employs some 200,000 people, and its huge liabilities are widely held not only by financial institutions, but also retail investors as well as home buyers and suppliers in numerous industries. And already in the past few weeks, we've seen sporadic protests from retail investors at Evergrande offices throughout China. And more protests could emerge if things don't change or improve quickly. And social stability, of course, has always been the number one priority for the Chinese government. So that's why all eyes are now on the Beijing leadership to see if and how they will step in to bail out this once high-flying Chinese conglomerate. Stephen Zhang, CNN, Beijing. And here in the U.S., futures are deep in the red as investors consider the global impact if Evergrande defaults. Matt Egan now joins us live with more. Good morning to you, Matt. So, you know, we just heard from Stephen about the concern of Evergrande, uh, you know, the impact of it possibly defaulting and impacting the Chinese economy. So why are we seeing U.S. stocks take such of a such a big hit today of all days? Well, Allison, uh, U.S. stocks are taking such a big hit because there is concern that this is going to spill over. Uh, you know, we learned uh, 13 years ago last week how a domino falling in one part of the world, Lehman Brothers in that case, can send you know, shockwaves around uh, the whole planet. That's because the financial system is just so interconnected. So there is some worry that this is Lehman 2.0. Um, and, and there is reason to keep a very close eye on what happens uh, with Evergrande. I mean, this is a, 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 a company that has $300 billion in liabilities. It's the number two uh, real estate company in China, uh, real estate has been one of the bigger drivers of growth in China, and China is one of the biggest drivers of global growth. Uh, so what happens here uh, really matters. Goldman Sachs put out a report yesterday saying that you know the Chinese government needs to manage this carefully because there are some signs of um, financing uh, issues that are starting to spread. Uh, but we should be careful to point out that uh, China is uh, very different from the United States uh, as far as how the government reacts to this kind of thing. I mean, Beijing has vast control over the Chinese economy, over the, the banking system, over the financial markets. I mean, just look at the crackdowns that we've seen in recent months on uh, casinos and video games and, and ride-hailing uh, companies. And so the expectation on Wall Street is that Beijing is going to do everything it needs to do to make sure this doesn't spread. And that's because, you know, it's just simply not in China's best interest uh, to have this devolve into something uh, that creates instability. Uh, but clearly, Allison, we, we need to keep a close eye on this. Matt, specifically, what is the U.S. exposure to Evergrande? Yeah, I, I don't know that we have uh, that the United States has that much direct exposure. Uh, but, uh, you know, we, we do know that uh, some U.S. companies obviously would be hurt if there's a, an overall slowdown in real estate. If there's kind of a risk-off event broadly, then, then people might start pulling uh, some of their bets on some of the riskier parts of the, the U.S. market. So you could see how there could be a whole chain of events there. Uh, but again, mm -hmm. the expectation is that even if Evergrande is allowed to uh, collapse, uh, that China is going to try to you know, ring fence uh, the losses there and make sure that it doesn't spread uh, too far because they don't want their own economy and their own market uh, to collapse. Debt ceiling also on investors' minds. I know that uh, Janet Yellen, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, writing an op-ed that really caught everybody's attention. 
Yeah, Allison, uh, the clock is still uh, ticking on the debt ceiling. Uh, we, we haven't had any action there yet. And the U.S., the Treasury Department has said that, listen, if Congress does not raise this federal borrowing limit, uh, then at some point in October, the federal government is going to run out of cash. And, and that raises the specter of a default, which obviously would be uh, you know, catastrophic. And Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, she wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal over the weekend. And let me read to you a, a key line from Yellen. She said, the U.S. has never defaulted, not once. Doing so would likely precipitate a historic financial crisis that would compound the damage of the continuing public health emergency, historic financial crisis. Again, that's from Janet Yellen, who is very careful with her words, if not understated. Um, Again, most people that I talk to, they do expect that Congress is going to do the right thing, uh, that they're going to raise the debt ceiling because uh, just not acting here would be uh, too damaging. Uh, But, you know, we we still need to see action here. the, the Republican Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, he said that he wants the Democrats to own this. He said that Republicans are not going to vote uh, to raise the debt ceiling, even though it's been done uh, in a bipartisan way in the past. And Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, she said she does want this to be done uh, bipartisan. So for now, the two sides continue to play chicken with uh, America's creditworthiness. And, um, you know, this is eventually going to start to, to matter to financial markets. I don't think we've seen a lot of evidence yet that investors are, are, are that worried. But at a certain point, as we get closer to October, and if nothing's done, then I do think that's going to start to play out in in U.S. markets as well. Yeah, I think you're right, Bad. And, you know, she also said widespread economic catastrophe could result if the debt limit is not raised. Matt, uh, great talking with you. In the UK, wholesale prices for natural gas have hit record highs. The government is holding crisis talks with leaders in the energy industry where high prices have driven some suppliers out of business. Household gas bills are expected to soar this winter after market prices tripled since January. Anna Stewart joins me live now. Anna, I know the government is trying to uh, reassure Britons that there won't be an energy crisis because of these rising gas prices. But what can the government do? Well, we do hope to find out soon. Following that roundtable, the business secretary is due to address Parliament in the coming hours. Gas prices are so high right across Europe for a number of reasons. Really a perfect storm. There was the very long winter last year. The fact that coal and solar output has been so low. And also, of course, like much of the world, they're just transitioning away from coal plants and nuclear energy. In the UK, that has actually been exacerbated by the fact that gas storage facilities have been drastically reduced in recent years. Now, at least four energy suppliers have already gone bust. One energy consultancy firm we spoke to this morning said between 35 and 40 more are likely to go bust before winter is through. That would impact 10% of customers. So the problem for the government here is what you do with those customers who, of course, are going to need energy going through winter. The big firms that remain that are well capitalized and are well hedged for this can't simply afford to take on a huge influx of new customers. Now, options on the table include the government taking over the administration from some of these failed companies. But of course, that means the taxpayer foots the bill. Another option could see them just uh, underwriting some debt for those companies that survive so they can afford to take on new customers. Or interesting chat about creating some sort of bad bank situation, an energy state company that could take on those customers while the current crisis uh, rages on until it is resolved. There has been a fair amount of criticism, Alison, with the UK government in terms of have they done enough really to bolster energy security while trying to transition to cleaner energy? 
And you know, with, with rising energy prices, there's always this domino effect, right? Can you talk me through here uh, what this means beyond the energy sector? Yeah, it really is a domino effect. We're seeing shockwaves through all sorts of sectors, but particularly food and drink supply chains really in focus at the moment. The CEO of UK supermarket chain, uh, Iceland, was speaking to the BBC this morning and said, it's no longer about whether Christmas will be okay, but whether they can keep the wheels turning and the lights on to get to Christmas. And this is because supply chains were already under huge pressure, particularly with food and drink. Uh, A big shortage of truck drivers related to Brexit, also all the pandemic pressures. And part of this is because fertilizer plants, three large ones, have actually shut production uh, in the UK as a result of the high gas price. It just didn't make economic sense for them to continue. And the byproducts of those plants are CO2 and ammonia, which is so important for many, many sectors, but particularly food and drink. CO2, of course, used to stun animals before slaughter, used to carbonate drinks. He used to keep food and drink fresh when it goes through storage uh, and transportation. So this is why it is so under pressure. So add that to the government's to-do list. What are they going to do? Can they persuade fertilizer companies uh, to open back up again? Can they find another supply of CO2? And frankly, what are they going to do with all of the other issues already impacting some of these sectors like the shortage of drivers as a result of Brexit? Alison. Anna Stewart, that is some domino effect you just went through. (laughs) Great to have you on the show. Very thorough. Lovely to see you, Alison. Good to see you. All right. These are the stories making headlines around the world. A gunman at a Russian university has killed at least six people and left many others wounded. Officials say he entered the campus Monday morning with a hunting weapon and began firing. He was later injured while resisting arrest and was taken to the hospital. The attack was the second mass shooting at a Russian school this year. Russia's ruling party is on track to win parliamentary elections that were widely seen as fraudulent. With most of the ballots counted, United Russia appears to have won half the votes, securing its majority in parliament's lower house. The Kremlin has hailed the election results as positive, but critics claim there was widespread rigging. Pfizer has announced that its COVID-19 vaccine generates a robust antibody response in children ages 5 to 11. These are the first such results released for this age group for U.S. COVID-19 vaccines. Pfizer says it will request emergency use authorization for children from U.S. drug regulators soon. Access to COVID-19 vaccines tops the agenda of the 76th U.N. General Assembly session this week in Manhattan. More than 100 world leaders are attending. Other topics they'll likely discuss include climate change, the fall of Afghanistan, and tensions with nations like Iran and North Korea. France continues to make waves after being left out of a multi-billion dollar submarine deal between the UK, US, and Australia. Now it's warning a trade deal between the European Union and Australia is at risk of collapse, citing a lack of trust Cyril Varnier is in Paris for us. Cyril, you know, I know you've been following this very closely, and I'm curious, after hearing uh, this warning, how much follow-through do you think this has on the part of France? Yeah, I think there is very much the potential, Alison, for France to go ahead and pull the plug on this deal. I'm not saying it will happen. I'm saying it could happen for several reasons. First of all, the domestic audience here, uh, Emmanuel Macron, has been criticized by his opposition for uh, France being kicked out of this submarine deal, multi-billion deal. 
uh, well, uh, Mr. Macron will not want to appear a week less than a year ahead of the presidential election in a tough re-election battle. Number two, the language coming out of French officials, especially the uh, foreign minister who spoke of lies, betrayal, former alliances and partnerships, that language has been so strong that if there is no action behind it, it will ring hollow at some point. Thirdly, this has reawakened a divide between the Anglo-Saxon world and, um, and the European continent. And France has a history of being rankled by that and taking strong, very strong positions. So I think for all those reasons, and also because France plays a central role in Europe, France may decide to pull Europe away from this deal that will represent two to four billion dollars of the European GDP, only a fraction of what the submarine deal, $65 billion, represented for France. Does France's retaliation stop with Australia, or will it move on to the U.S. and then the U.K.? That is currently being assessed right here in France, because it is one thing retaliating at Australia. It is one thing taking action against the U.K. It's a completely other thing taking action against the U.S. I think Short term, um, France has not announced what it would do, apart, of course, from uh, recalling its ambassadors, which it has already done. Uh, I think longer term, this plays into the narrative of the French president, who believes that the power of European countries, not just France, but the 27 member states of the European Union, their power comes through collective joint action on the world stage. That is why he wants a joint military for Europe, he wants a more robust foreign policy, and he is going to be making that argument to the 26 other countries. Now, time as timing would have it, France will hold the rotating presidency of the European Union starting in January, and that's going to be a platform for Mr. Macron to make this argument forcefully that if Europe does not want to be snubbed, does not want to be handled by some of its own partners, the U.S. and the U.K., then it needs to assert itself more forcefully on the global stage. Oh, the effects of this canceled deal not going away anytime soon. Cyril Vanier, thanks so much for all of your great reporting. Still to come on First Move, Europe's vaccine rollout was once criticized for being too slow. Then it hit targets early. Europe's vaccine chief tells me how. And Amazon adds climate goals to the list of things it says it can deliver ahead of schedule. We'll take a look at its net zero pledge. Welcome back to First Move. I'm Allison Kosick. The big story we're following for you this Monday remains weakness on global financial markets. The major U.S. averages are on track for sizable losses when trading gets underway in the next few minutes. We are expecting losses of over 1.5% for the Dow, S&P, and the Nasdaq. This follows the weakness we saw in markets on Friday, with the S&P and the Nasdaq falling almost 1%. Stocks fell below a key technical level that is closely watched by investors, too. The Dow has now fallen for three weeks in a row as investors focusing on Chinese economic uncertainty, the future of U.S. stimulus, and the looming U.S. debt ceiling deadline. It's creating a risk-off sentiment that's hitting crypto as well. Uh, Looking at Bitcoin today, it's currently down about 8%. Europe's vaccine rollout was so slow that the World Health Organization branded it unacceptable. But since then, Europe has caught up. By August, it hit its target of vaccinating 70% of adults. Last week, the bloc said it was donating another 200 million doses to low-income countries. 
That brings the total number of donated doses to over 400 million. Joining me now is Thierry Breton. He is the EU Internal Market Commissioner. He is also in charge of Europe's vaccine strategy. Grateful for your time today. I know this begins a very busy week for you uh, with all of your top-level meetings uh, with the UNGA beginning as well. Thanks for your time today. Thank you very much, Alison. Thank you for having me. Now, some of those meetings that you're going to be having will be involving um, vaccine manufacturing supply. The U.S. has surpassed the U.S. in terms of vaccinations, as I said, with more than 70 percent of the population vaccinated. Still, though, both the U.S. and the EU are struggling with the same question, the question of how to boost vaccination rates even more. I'm curious how you feel about the vaccine rollout after criticism of a slow start. But, you know, it's true that uh, uh, we started a little bit slow, uh, but uh, I think it's fair now to recognize that uh, today Europe is the first continent. It's the first continent in terms of uh, vaccination. Uh, we are at uh, 73 percent of the adult population being vaccinated, where the U.S. are um, at 66 percent. I think uh, uh, we still continue, need to continue, of course, to convince our fellow citizens. Uh, but we are proud to be the first continent also in terms of uh, vaccine production. We produce more than 300 million doses per uh, month. And we are also the first continent in terms of uh, uh, sharing and uh, sending uh, outside uh, vaccines because more than half of our productions is for other countries. So that's a triple first, uh, uh, which is uh, uh, important. We need to continue, and I'm here also in Washington DC this morning, uh, to continue the, uh, the discussion and the collaboration uh, with my counterpart, uh, Jeff Zayans. We have been, of course, in contact uh, since the last uh, eight months on a weekly basis uh, to make sure that we'll be able to work together. That's extremely important. And I know uh, semiconductors and supply chain issues, that's going to be some of the topics on the table at a bilateral meeting you're going to be having with the U.S. Commerce Secretary. What do you hope will come out of those discussions? I need to be, uh, to be clear and, and honest with you, Alison. Um, uh, of course, uh, my, my trip uh, was planned already for weeks, and I'm extremely happy to be here in D.C. to uh, be able to uh, uh, continue to engage cooperation with my counterpart. But uh, it's fair to say that uh, since a few weeks, um, let's say the feeling uh, in, uh, in, in Europe is, is growing uh, through the population uh, that something is broken uh, uh, between our, our relations in, in Europe and the U.S., uh, I've personally regretted it, but that's uh, a growing feeling. It's true also with member states. So, of course, uh, um, it means that uh, we are allies. That's extremely important. But when we are allies, trust is paramount. And there is a feeling in Europe that trust, um, uh, uh, first, is not a given, and it's maybe not uh, the way it should be. So, this being said, uh, here I am. Um, we need to continue uh, to discuss uh, because we have a lot of common interest uh, between uh, U.S. and EU. And when this interest uh, match the interest of Europe, of course, uh, I'm here to uh, continue to discuss. Like in semiconductor, we have a lot to bring to the U.S. Uh, by the way, uh, we uh, decided together that uh, within the next 10 years, we need to increase production uh, uh, together uh, by, uh, from 20% uh, together today in global production in the world to 50%. Uh, we have a lot to share also in R&D, but uh, we will discuss this on a balanced way, of course. Same thing, of course, for supply chains. Same thing for space. We have a lot of cooperation. Uh, and, of course, uh, also in uh, uh, what we do on the platforms. 
The, let's go back to a little bit of what you talked about at the beginning of your answer there about a, a, a breach of trust. Are you referring, I'm assuming, to the submarine deal? Uh, not only, uh, unfortunately, uh, I refer again with this sentiment that I'm sharing with you today. Um, and uh, uh, by the way, uh, it started uh, with, of course, uh, the previous administration, uh, needless to say. But uh, it was a big hope uh, that we will be able to, uh, to, uh, to come back on a more normal relation. But it's true that what happened, uh, let's say, uh, over the past uh, uh, few weeks, and especially in Afghanistan, uh, I've been uh, uh, really... Um, uh, um, seen as, um, let's say, a lack of uh, uh, trust and confidence between allies. We are allies. We know what it means to be allies. Allies means that we need to speak, that we need to share. And by the way, uh, uh, on this planet, uh, uh, nobody could be the center of, the, of this planet. We need to have ally and partnership. I'm here again uh, to make sure that we'll be able to, uh, to rebuild this partnership, even if, if in some areas. Uh, we may need to pause and to reset it. But I will discuss this with my counterpart. You know, President Biden had campaigned about getting the United States back in the good graces of its allies after the previous administration, the Trump administration. Do you think that President Biden is not doing that because because of what happened with this submarine deal um, and, uh, and 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 Australia, obviously? Again, again, I'm speaking to you as a European commissioner and, uh, and, and, and I'm sharing with you uh, the growing feeling uh, in the U.S. I spend all my life working with the U.S. Uh, uh, I have so many friends here. I, I know the strength of our partnership. Uh, uh, we know exactly, by the way, uh, who are uh, our allies. Uh, uh, U.S. Uh, are our allies. But again, allies means trust. Um, uh, China is uh, definitely uh, uh, our systemic rivals. So we share the same view of the world. But believe me, believe me, U.S. plus uh, uh, EU, uh, we represent 10% of the population of this planet. We cannot, uh, we will not be able to afford to go on our own. So that's why uh, uh, we have some tracks, for example, in vaccines. Yes, we need to continue to speed up. Uh, mm -hmm. And I'm preparing again the meeting that uh, 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 Ursula von der Leyen uh, will have probably with uh, President Biden on this. But we have also uh, other things, uh, fight against the CO2. We need to be together here. And I'm here also to talk about this, including in other topics like, uh, for example, cybersecurity. Okay, Thierry Breton, EU Commissioner, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you very much, Alison. You're watching First Move. The Market Open is next. Welcome back to First Move. I'm Allison Kosick, and U.S. markets are up and running this Monday. And as expected, stocks are kicking off the trading week with some pretty sizable losses here. Uh, the blue chips among the biggest losers in early trading, with the Dow coming off its third straight weekly drop. Even before today's sell-off, Bank of America, Deutsche Bank, and Morgan Stanley all warning that a 10% market correction is looking more likely. Fears of market contagion from China's property developer crisis that's helping to contribute to today's stock downdraft. It's also triggering a flight to safe haven U.S. bonds. Bond prices are rising and yields are falling. The safe haven U.S. dollar is also uh, is on the rise today as well. All this comes as the U.S. House returns to work today with the future of trillions in fiscal stimulus hanging in the balance. The fierce partisanship on Capitol Hill is all but assuring a down-to-the-wire battle to raise the debt ceiling, too. Greg Valliere joins me live now. He is the chief U.S. policy strategist at AGF Investments. Great to see you. 
You bet. Nice to see you. And there is so much to talk about. But let's begin with President Biden's sweeping tax uh, and spending proposals. They face a bruising fight. So let's take one at a time here, if you wouldn't mind. What do you see happening with the initial $1 trillion infrastructure bill and then the $3.5 trillion uh, package of social spending and tax hikes? Talk about the timing of all this. How is this going to play out? Well, it's confusing. Like, I think everything we'll talk about this morning. I, I do think there's still a chance for the $1 trillion, Allison, which is basic infrastructure, bridges, highways, dams, water, Wi-Fi. The second bill, the $3.5 trillion bill, seems to be encountering even more opposition, not just from Joe Manchin of West Virginia, but there are House members who are having problems with the Medicare drug negotiations, with the timing, on and on and on. And maybe more importantly, the deadline that Nancy Pelosi set for next Monday, the 27th, apparently will be missed. Okay, so that, what does that mean, missing that deadline for, for uh, this legislation? Well, I, I think they'll have to put that on the shelf for a while and then do a, uh, uh, a continuing resolution to keep the government afloat on October 1. So that means that the, the second huge infrastructure bill, I think, could drag well into the fall, maybe even into December. How does all this, how does immigration fit into this? Um, You know, it's all about negotiation. It's all about you give me this, I'll give you that. Immigration has been a key part of of President Biden's Build Back Better agenda and his pledge for reform with immigration. Where does that fit into all this? It looks like it probably will not fit into it, Allison. The uh, parliamentarian of the Senate ruled over the weekend that it was not germane to the $3.5 trillion uh, bill. So I think uh, immigration is probably not going to be addressed as we see all of these horrible uh, videos of people in Texas living under a bridge. And so as we see uh, you know, e- each of these pieces of legislation being used as sort of a bargaining chip, now competing for the attention are what you mentioned are the two massive tasks that Congress still faces, A, funding the U.S. government and B, increasing the debt ceiling. What do you see happening there? Well, unfortunately, nothing uh, right away. I'm not sure who to believe in terms of when we have to get it done. My sense is we probably can wait until late October before Janet Yellen and the Treasury Department run out of money. But she was quite alarmist over the weekend in an uh, op-ed in the Wall Street Journal saying we could have a catastrophe if we don't deal with it. I think she wants to get uh, pressure on Mitch McConnell, maybe have the markets put pressure on Mitch McConnell to try to get this thing done. But as of now, the Republicans have no interest in doing anything on this. And as we go well into the fall, the debt ceiling may be the most ominous of all of these stories. How dangerous is it that we've got two large pieces of legislation that are really key pieces of the Biden administration, along with the debt ceiling, along with, uh, you know, on the table, keeping the government running? How dangerous is this that everything is culminating at once? It, it, it sure doesn't help things. It makes it very confusing. And I'd say a complicating factor you've got to concede is that Biden has lost some political capital uh, over the withdrawal in Afghanistan, over confusing uh, confusion on shots, over immigration, over crime. So the president himself does not have the political clout, the political capital now that he had, let's say, in the spring. 
All right. Looking at the market today, we are seeing a big sell-off. Do you think this is the beginning of a, uh, a correction? Oh, yes. I, you know, a lot of it is not entirely Washington. It's Chinese. Uh, there are Chinese issues, of course. But I think the confusion over taxes, over spending, over the debt ceiling, that confusion is going to persist for weeks and weeks to come. The Fed is having its meeting on Wednesday, um, going to make an announcement, going to have a press conference. What do you expect to hear from Fed Chief Jay Powell? I think they'll make it clear that the Fed will begin tapering its asset purchases later in the fall, not at the meeting this week. I don't think that's going to happen. But there's a problem with the Fed now. Uh, There's controversy over Fed regional bank presidents uh, trading being active traders. They're saying they didn't violate any rules. I would say there may be something wrong with the rules if Fed officials are active traders. So that puts the Fed in a difficult spot. It seems like everywhere you look, Allison, there's controversy. Do you think that will impact Jay Powell staying in his seat? I don't think so. I think he still is the favorite, but it sure gives Elizabeth Warren and the Fed's critics something uh, else to complain about when you've got Fed officials who are active traders. I don't think it looks good. I think it's embarrassing for the Fed. Okay. Thanks for your time, Greg Valliere, the chief U.S. policy strategist at AGF Investments. Great to see you. You bet. Coming up, Amazon's bold promises to cut carbon emissions. That's all great. So what's it doing about all those little boxes? I'll deliver that story to you in two and a half minutes. Welcome back. As world leaders gather for this week's United Nations General Assembly, expect to hear a lot about a post-pandemic world which is kinder to the environment. The U.N. says this is a pivotal moment for the future of the planet. At the same time, some of the world's biggest brands are joining forces with Amazon in a promise to cut carbon emissions. 202 organizations have signed the climate pledge to achieve net zero carbon by 2040 or sooner. Kara Hurst is vice president of worldwide sustainability at Amazon, and she joins me live. Great to see you. Great to see you. Thanks for having me today. Uh, Glad to have you with us to talk about uh, this announcement of who uh, is signing on today to this pledge. Talk with me about how many uh, companies, why this is significant in the broader text of climate change. Absolutely. Well, we're really excited. We committed to the Climate Pledge in 2019, co-founded it with a group called Global Optimism, which was run by Christiana Figueres, who was an architect of the original Paris Agreement. And the Climate Pledge asked companies to commit to net zero carbon by 2040, 10 years ahead of the Paris Agreement. So it's a really urgent action around climate. And today we're sharing that over 200 companies have already committed to this. So That is $1.8 trillion in revenue from those companies, over 7 million employees worldwide. Uh, It's across 26 different industries and in 21 different countries. So it's a really huge effort that a number of very large and some small companies are making around a commitment to urgent climate action. And I know, you know, Amazon uh, has was the first one to sign on to this pledge. What kind of progress has Amazon made? Absolutely. So we knew that with our size and our scale um, and looking at the science that the IPCC reporting and thinking about kind of what we were seeing in the world, that if we could commit to this urgent action on climate, that we would hope to inspire others to take that 
uh, action as well. And so we're making large operational changes. Um, we're looking at our carbon footprint and looking at our transportation, our fleet, our logistics, our building, and thinking about how do we transform our operations to act you know, more urgently on climate. So we're looking at things like electrification of our fleet. Um, we've ordered over 100,000 electric vehicles from a company called Rivian, but we've also mm -hmm. partnered with others around the world. And we've purchased a large amount of renewable energy. So we're the largest global purchaser of renewable energy, and we're now operating with 65% of our global operations powered by renewables. So those big changes can make quite a difference. Talking, speaking of changes, you know, I, I, I'm a huge uh, customer of Amazon, full disclosure, and I get lots of boxes and packages sent to me every day. And I'm wondering, am I contributing uh, to harming the environment with all of those packages coming to my house? So multiply that. I see them piling up on the streets of New York City for them to be delivered. Well, thanks for being a customer, Allison. Um, <laughs> I also am a, <laughs> I'm an Amazon customer, and I watch those packages coming in my house every day. And one of the things I've been doing with my kids um, is looking at that packaging. And we've been really investing in um, better packaging for well over a decade. Uh, over 10 years ago, we launched a program called Frustration-Free Packaging, which was about really converting packaging to 100% recyclable. Uh, to eliminating things like clamshells and twist ties and to right-sizing packaging. We also have an effort called Ship to Known Container, which is when you order a product and mm -hmm. it comes without Amazon overboxing. Um, and we also launched a program related to the pledge called Climate Pledge Friendly. And that program is around certifications where customers make it easy for customers to shop for more climate-friendly products that reduce carbon and preserve the natural world. So all of those things really have added up to uh, huge numbers. We've reduced uh, the mm -hmm. amount of the weight of the outbound packaging by 36 percent um, since 2015, and that is a you know a savings of over two billion boxes. Mm -hmm. um, we've mm -hmm. also introduced recycled options, so like a padded paper mailer that's fully recyclable. Right. So hopefully you're seeing those changes. You're seeing more right size boxes, and we're sharing that with all kinds of companies mm -hmm. that sell their products on Amazon and and those in general that sell. But we also know that e-commerce mm -hmm. is actually more sustainable. It's a more sustainable way to shop. So there's a lot of things where uh, those changes are happening and uh, we can make customers feel good about the choices that they're making. One more question about the overall climate pledge that you're backing here. Um, is there a watchdog watching over these companies? I mean, I know they're self-reporting what they're doing, uh, but you look at Nespresso's parent company, Nestle. It was actually one of several companies last month that were called out for greenwashing, meaning touting themselves as being eco-champions, but instead not following through. And Nestle was actually one of the world's top plastic polluters for the third year in a row. And I noticed its name on the list. Well, I think one of the really important things that companies need to do is to commit to sharing progress. And so that is the absolute, the first tenet of the climate pledge is to report and share progress towards climate uh, and carbon emission reduction. So we have a number of different partners we work with, not only Global Optimism that I mentioned, but also We Mean Business that includes organizations like CDP and the Science-Based Targets Initiative that are those science-led organizations and uh, reporting organizations that really are helping companies commit to very rigorous, standardized ways of mm -hmm. reporting um, on carbon emissions, carbon intensity reduction. And so those are important things for companies to lean into and to follow that guidance.
Okay, Kara Hurst, Vice President of Worldwide Sustainability at Amazon. Great talking with you. Thank you. Thank you so much. After the break, it's the Emmys on TV's Night of Nights. This pair had a lot to smile about. News just coming in to CNN. The United States is ready to relax travel restrictions for passengers coming in from the European Union and the UK, according to a person familiar with the matter. It's reported the new policy, which begins in November, applies to vaccinated passengers only, and it's a major victory for airlines and travel firms. Transatlantic travel has been severely restricted since March of 2020. Okay, let's take another check of the markets. Looks like U.S. stocks are coming off their worst levels of the session. Uh, The Nasdaq seeing the biggest pullback down only about one and a half percent. Not a great way. uh, Not a great way to begin the trading week, though. Claire Sebastian uh, joins me live now. Claire, you know, I was looking at those numbers. We're seeing a little bit of a seesaw action. Do you expect the sell off to continue to the closing bell today? Well, Alison, I think one thing to bear in mind is is the context of all of this in terms of what the markets have been doing uh, for the last year or so. We've really seen a very sustained rise in the S&P 500. There hasn't been a 5% pullback or more for, for about 11 months now. That, according to CFRA, it's triple the average that you usually get since World War II. So I think in many ways, while we do see this confluence of events, uh, the issues around Evergrande in China, uh, the the jockeying in Washington over the debt ceiling and spending, the Fed meeting this week, I think in many ways investors were looking for a reason to pull back. Many felt that the sort of the run-up had been going on for too long and they needed to take a breather here. So that might be part of what we're seeing at the moment. Could we see Wednesday as another down day or a volatile day for the market because we are going to be listening uh, to the Fed? I think the volatility is certainly going to continue. If you look at the VIX index, which shows sort of implied volatility or expected volatility in the market over the next month, that has come up significantly today. It's back up at levels that we saw in May when we got the last period of significant volatility in the market. That was driven by concerns around inflation. So perhaps this is a a, a sell the rumor by the news scenario, but it just depends on what the Fed says and how they signal this. We know that they are, they are, that there's sort of a consensus building around the idea that, that, that tapering is going to be necessary, that there's no reason uh, to really wait. But we also get economic projections as well. So that will be closely watched uh, for how the Fed thinks that the Delta variant uh, and other concerns are going to impact growth into this year and next, Alison. Okay, Claire Sebastian, thanks for keeping an eye on the markets for us. And there were plenty of name checks for Ted Lasso stars at the Emmys last night. The Emmy goes to Hannah Waddington for Ted Lasso. Brett Goldstein, Ted Lasso. Jason Sudeikis, Ted Lasso. And the Emmy for Outstanding Comedy Series goes to Ted Lasso. The Apple TV Plus comedy dominated the top prizes. After three previous tries, The Crown finally won Best Drama, just one of the awards it took in a a seven-trophy haul. Netflix had ten wins last night, and HBO, which, like CNN, is part of Warner Media, won nine. Frank Pallotta joins me on uh, this sweep for streaming services. Frank, tell me more. I had to go to sleep and wake up to, you know, get ready for this show, so give me the lowdown. What's really interesting is that the Emmys have always been about 
TV's biggest night. But last night it was really about streaming's biggest night. So what's been really interesting is that when you look at Netflix, you look at, uh, you know, Ted Lasso, so all that stuff is happening while we're watching. Are you able to tell so far, Frank, if uh, how the ratings were? Because I know last year's Emmys were a ratings low. Can you tell so far how they did? Well, we don't have the numbers yet, but I'm actually kind of curious to see if it's going to be less than it was last year, because basically what we're really noticing is that we had to go up against a big football game last night, which was the Ravens taking on the Chiefs. So the NFL probably took a lot of its audience away. But the bigger problem is, is that, you know, we have this fragmented audience now where people aren't watching all the same thing. So there, you know, even though Ted Lasso had this huge sweep last night, you know, many people may not even know what Ted Lasso is because they don't have Apple TV Plus. So that might hurt the ratings in the long run. So what should we be watching for now? What are the shows we should be binge watching? I mean, I'm a huge fan of Ted Lasso, so I wouldn't go up against the Emmys right now. But I, I mean, that, that's what I would say is probably the best show out there. I just finished that was really interesting, too. Uh, are we ever, and you know what comes to mind? I'm thinking of Ozark. When are we going to see another, uh, another Ozark? Yeah, I, I don't know when we're going to see oh, the next uh, season is coming up next year, but we'll see soon. Netflix has just a ton of content coming out at all times. Well, I, I can't wait to, to watch the next season of Ozark. Frank Pilata, thanks for running down everything with the Emmys last night. Before Thank we you. go, I want to. I want to take a quick uh, check on the markets and see if they're recovering at all from the big sell-off we saw earlier. We're seeing uh, markets off the lows of the session, seeing the Dow down uh, about 382 points, only one, about a little over 1%. Uh, keep in mind, even seeing these big numbers, uh, markets are still sitting close to record highs. Thanks for watching. Be sure to connect with me on Instagram and Twitter at Allison Kosick. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is next. I'll see you next time. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.